we visit Kashmir. Our previous chapter was, we do not visit Kashmir. And we had asked perhaps for each of us to apply whatever reality we wanted to that. I do not get the job I wanted. I do not find the right partner. I do not go to wherever it is I wanted to. I do not, you know, fulfill that particular desire. And so that whole flow was how to attune to the Guru, how to attune to the Divine intuitive perception to understand and feel what is it that's going on when certain things don't work out the way we want them to. Now we are at We Visit Kashmir and so you can now apply the other aspect to it that, okay, now it does get fulfilled. Because a lot of people get confused, don't they, about what does God really want from me? Does He want me to go to Kashmir? Does He not want me to go to Kashmir? And of course, God particularly doesn't have any interest in Kashmir or whether you visit it or not. And as we said, you can apply whatever aspect of your life to it. It is that in disappointment, there are certain things you learn. In fulfillment, there are certain things you learn. And that's what God's most interested in, <laughs> is what are you going to learn? What will you learn through the disappointment of a certain desire? What will you learn through the fulfillment of a certain desire? Of course, most of us get up, get so caught up in the desire itself on whether it's happening or not happening that we miss out. And so therefore, it has to happen over and over again. So every desire has to be tested again and again and again and again. But when we get into that flow and we realize, ah, this is what I needed to learn here and you relax into it, then usually, more often than not, at least we've seen so in our lives, things that we put our mind to, if they don't happen in the way or in the time that we wanted to, they almost always happen because that's God wants us to realize that even in complete fulfillment of a desire, there's only the true joy doesn't come from that, but from recognizing and understanding, ah, this is what it should feel like when I understand my karma and my lesson entirely. So here we are, we saw in our previous chapter, um, Yoganandaji uh, going down with Asiatic cholera and Sri Yukteswarji healing him from it. You are strong enough now to travel. I will accompany you to Kashmir. So after three times, three years of kind <laughs> of each time <laughs> thwarting that desire of Yogananda's, Sri Yukteswar finally consents because now he's learned whatever he needed to learn. And of course, also that particular healing, that particular safe uh, saving of his life that Sri Yukteswar had to perform. Sri Yukteswar informed me two days after my miraculous recovery from Asiatic cholera. So imagine that. Just two days ago, he was like ready to leave the body and now he's like, oh, yeah, now you're well enough. Chalo, let's go to Kashmir. I, I like this, um, how it happened because Sri Yukteswar didn't inform him, Yogananda, when they would go. And very unexpectedly, very casual, just, you know, in two days we will go. And that's sometimes how the Guru does with us. He doesn't tell us exactly when things are going to happen. And in the most unexpected way, boom, that inspiration comes, that desire gets materialized, that insights, insight arrives into our heart. And I, I just love the fact that the Guru always works with us both very precisely according to God's timing and yet very spontaneously. So it's important for us to always be ready to just do and go wherever the Guru asks us 
to go. And, and I love that attitude of Yogananda Ji, always to be ready to do and to go anywhere. And in this case, to Kashmir, finally. Yeah, and so that <laughs> evening, I mean, like immediately, that evening, our party of six entrained for the north. Our first leisurely stop was at Shimla, a queenly city resting on the throne of Himalayan hills. We strolled over the steep streets, admiring the magnificent views. English strawberries for sale, cried an old woman squatting in a picturesque open marketplace. Master was curious about the strange little red fruits. So of course, strawberries now is such a common thing, but back then, most people hadn't seen strawberries, and especially in Calcutta, it was an unknown fruit. He bought a basket full and offered it to Kanai and myself over nearby. I tasted one berry, but spat it out hastily on the ground. <laughs> Sir, what a sour fruit. I could never like strawberries. My guru laughed. Oh, you will like them in America. At a dinner there, your hostess will serve them with sugar and cream. After she has mashed the berries with a fork, you will taste them and say, what delicious strawberries. Then you will remember this day in Shimla. How like exactly precise this person will do this, mash it in this particular way. We had a fun, I don't know what time, when it was like a month ago or so, one of our friends, Chitra, she kind of brought over strawberries and cream oh, yeah. and sugar and we sat out there and we were just remembering Remember this scene it. and we were like, we're going to eat it the way, you know, our guru enjoyed eating it. <laughs> Sri Yukteswar's forecast vanished from my mind but reappeared there many years later, shortly after my arrival in America. I was a dinner guest at the home of Mrs. Alice T. Hasey, later known as Sister Yogamata in West Somerville, Massachusetts. When a dessert of strawberries was put on the table, my hostess picked up her fork and mashed my berries, adding cream and sugar. The fruit is rather tart. I think you will like it fixed this way, she remarked. I took a mouthful. What delicious strawberries, I exclaimed. At once, my guru's prediction in Shimla emerged from the fathomless cave of memory. It was staggering to realize that long ago, Sri Yukteswar's God-tuned mind had sensitively detected the program of karmic events wandering in the ether of futurity. I love that. I mean, how, does, yeah. how beautifully these words are put together. Just let's read them once again. I was, it was staggering to realize that long ago, Sri Yukteswar's God-tuned mind had sensitively detected the program of karmic events wandering in the ether of futurity. So it's all there. Now, one might say that, therefore, we're slaves to, you know, it's all written, so what's the point? I should just not do anything because what's going to happen is going to happen anyway. But these are, you know, these are, you can say, directions of waves of karma that exist and at any time a lot of that can be changed but a lot of it is going to manifest in one fashion or the other and of course in Sri Yukteswar's case being completely merged into God where all creation rests not just inside him but he rests in all creation 
Of course, that's a whole other game. We, we might as well call that cheating to a certain degree. But you know, when I was reading this, I got a, just a thought of how, you know how we always get this um, experience of deja vu? Mm -hmm. Don't be like, it's like ah, I've been here before, I've done this before. And I was just thinking like, what if it's like this, you know, Yogananda just eats the strawberry, says, oh, what delicious strawberries, and immediately recalls. In his case, he recalls how his guru kind of told him that this is going to happen. And I was just wondering if how many times in how many lives our own gurus have perhaps given us little glimpses of our own karmic future, have drawn from the ether of our own lifetime after lifetime. And sometimes those deja vu experiences perhaps are just those remembrances that at some point perhaps our guru mm. told us, ah, you know, this is going to happen in your life. And that's why it feels so familiar, so surreal, and you can't quite figure out how it could be because I have never been in this particular setting before. I've never had these exact people in one place before. But suddenly I feel that this has happened before, that this is so real to me. I also like, and I would like for all of us to tune in details about this trip to Kashmir because Sri Yudeshwar is just almost giving Yogananda predictions. Like, I mean, just in the middle of the street, boom, he just throw out, you know, like almost a prophecy of uh, for master, like, okay, taste that strawberry, almost like Sri Yudeshwar created the whole scenario using the strawberries, you know, buying the strawberries so Yogananda could taste it, and then boom, he had a perfect casual setting which Sri Yudeshwar could just hint at Yogananda his own destiny. I mean, it's, it's almost like he waited the right moment to always throw these insights and put them into Yogananda's consciousness. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how Sri Yudeshwar worked with Yogananda's destiny, how he trained him, the way he shared information to Yogananda only in very unusual places, in unusual situations. People think we feel that only when we are in front of the Guru meditating, deep meditation, you know, where everything is just super still and then the Guru can tell us what's going to happen with that. And here we have <laughs> Sri Yuteshwar in the middle of the street, just when Yogananda is it, you know, abides, just spitting, <laughs> spitting something. <laughs> there you have it. Let me tell you what's going to happen with you and your mission in 20 years from now. Staggering, really, just to contemplate that thought. Do you have any particular things on this page? Not really, actually. So, a lot of this chapter, and we'll skip certain sections because they're just how beautiful Kashmir was, how they went through in a carriage. Lovely, kind of joyful, visually appealing stories, but not all of them have something for us to really go deep into. So, we'll take certain sections that we'll just step over that, again, we'd really recommend that you read them because just you get to enter into that flow and get to travel with Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda. And so, We'll just kind of move forward a little bit. Our party soon left Shimla and we entrained for Raval Pindi. Which page? I, I'm still on the same page. I'm just okay. setting the context. Okay. There we hired a large landau drawn by two horses. 
in which we started a seven-day trip to Srinagar. So now they're heading for Srinagar. There's this little comical moment here with one of his <laughs> friends who's like trying to get a, wants to smoke a cigarette and, you know, Sri Yukteswar is already telling that this guy wants to smoke and Yogananda saying, no way, you know, how, why are you telling his guru, why are you dampening the mood by bringing these negative thoughts? And of course, his guru, he just laughs it away. And so you've got all this moment. Now they arrive after seven days at Srinagar. We're on the next page, 195. And uh, they've stopped in central Kashmir in a little kind of a, a hotel. I, I love this little part because it really relates to how we are what we are experiencing right now. Our approach to Srinagar was through an avenue of tall, welcoming trees. We engaged rooms at a double-storied inn overlooking the noble hills. No running water was available. We drew our supply from a nearby well. As I was reading this, I don't know if um, some of you tuned into the letter that we had sent out, but for the last what, four days, but also for two weeks yeah, at least, we've you know we've had a lot of water problems, just having no running water and no well nearby to go and draw water from. But then for the last four days, we've just had practically no water at all, and it's something of course that all the villas, all the bungalows here in Raheja are going through. But we had some extra issues with our tanks, you know, master having fun with us those little karmas that need to play out one way or the other. And it's just been really astonishing to a certain degree to see how kind of unaffected you can become, you know, in your consciousness when something as basic as water, something as really, I mean, we were talking about how, the, how our lives just completely get changed if one major reality of it is taken away, you know, such as electricity, internet nowadays in a lot of our cases water but you know you break it all down and water is just essential our cook's been just like always every day she comes is there water and then you know she can't wash the dishes she can't do and, this she and can't. the maids yesterday and, when they came like yeah they just and the maids were believe. like ready to rebel against yeah, us like it's been four days and there's no water. Why, why don't you guys complain? I mean, just why you are smiling? Why just like, because she said everything... if in our house, if for four days there would be no water, we would start a revolution. <laughs> you could tell she was so angry at the fact that we didn't have water. Just because she didn't have water so she could mop the floor. I mean, like, that's the attachment. Like, this is my reality. I need water to do... And we were like, it's okay if there's no water. We're still doing our thing, just moving around. Doing, and so doing... anyway, just reading <laughs> yeah. this just reminded me of mm -hmm. the life we live in now in a time where, you know, there was no running water. It was such a natural thing for us to go and live that kind of a simple life. Or I'm going to go to a well nearby, I'm going to bring it. And uh, now even if a tiny thing shifts in our life, and of course something as precious as water, it just becomes really hard. But uh, it's wonderful to see how the spiritual path, as you walk it, how unaffected you can become by some things as simple and basic as water. And how easy it becomes for you to, some way or the other, to manage your life and realize that what we need really to live a joyful life is just so basic. We need certain things, just very minimal things. So, you know, whenever water came for like those 15 minutes, Everybody's job in the house was to fill as many buckets as we could and, you know, do whatever we can in that moment, you know, taking those little mugs and, and then, you know, it's, it has its own fun appeal to it as well. But just to now say that water arrived last <laughs> night 
and, and, and the maids, this, this is what they were concerned. Our cook told us that the maids asked her, are these guys taking their shower daily? I mean, that, that's also the word they were so concerned. How are they taking their baths? <laughs> so there was this little gossiping about the villa number four, that they don't have no water, and they just wonder how we shower, how we, you know, just function daily. It has been anyway, fun, yeah. we are the yeah. weirdos over here, which we're very happy to be. So there they were, they didn't have running water as well, and the summer weather was ideal with warm days and slightly cold nights. We made a pilgrimage to the ancient Srinagar temple of Swami Shankara. I don't know if you've ever been to Srinagar. It's a beautiful temple, very, very much worth visiting that Shankaracharya established how many thousand years ago. I gazed upon the mountain peak hermitage standing bold against the sky and I fell into an ecstatic trance. A vision appeared of a hilltop mansion in a distant land. The lofty Shankara ashram before me was transformed into the structure where years later I established the Self-Realization Fellowship headquarters in America. When I first visited Los Angeles and saw the large building on the crest of Mount Washington, I recognized it at once from my long past visions in Kashmir and elsewhere. As Narayani was saying, this trip was more than just Yogananda visiting Kashmir because he had this deep desire. You know, everything that's these desires, these realities, these pulls, these draws that are created in our lives, they're all placed there, you know, just perfectly, beautifully to help us continue to move in the direction that we need to. And that is not to say that it, therefore we must indulge in our desires. The real point of the desire is it helps us move forward. Say we didn't have any desire, in a state that we are, we're not in a state of bliss, we're not even a in a state of perfect contentment. So a desireless state for us, because everybody says, oh, the spiritual path is about having no desires. And that's not what the spiritual path is about at all. The spiritual path is about having bliss. And so you have to achieve that bliss, which is also a desire to want to achieve it. But if we don't have any desires, a lot of us don't get to actually put the energy out into the world. We don't get to move our karma forward. Because for us, right now, if I had to be desireless, that means I would just sit in this chair and do nothing. Which serves nobody at all. And just incarnations are lost in that process. However, how to fulfill a desire, and this is what these two chapters are trying to help us tune into a little bit. When the desire is thwarted and then that very same desire is fulfilled, and just what that attunement and that alignment with that desire requires. And in this particular case, now Yogananda is suddenly receiving all this information, both from his guru, from his own visions, seeing this particular thing. Would it have happened if he had kind of, you know, uh, said to Sri Yogananda, fine, if you're not going to go, then I'm just going to go with my friends on my own. And even if he didn't have that disease, if he had come here, would he have received the same inspiration, insights and revelations that he is receiving now. I highly doubt it. So even in our own fulfillment, just keep looking for that. What is it that I must learn through this fulfillment just as much as I need to learn through my disappointments? I, I think Yogananda also needed some sort of real deep purification before he was able to handle this information and don't 
affect him spiritually. Mm. Sometimes, really, I, I'm so glad that God <laughs> and my guru um, don't tell me exactly how to go about things or what's going to happen with me in five, two years from now, even one week from now, because it could affect my ego. Mm. And it's so good that sometimes I have no idea what's going on. And my job is really pray for attunement, for clarity, keep listening, keep watching more sensitively, more carefully, keep deepening my meditations, my ability to open myself, to receive that inside and in that process. I'm learning, I'm receiving, I'm drawing that, you know, karma, that destiny that I have to fulfill ahead of me. So be comfortable and be relaxed with the fact that, you know, we don't know many things about our lives because indeed the Guru needs our willpower, our determination, our energy to manifest things so in the process we achieve the spiritual qualities qualities that we need to develop so don't be concerned don't be worried uh, don't be exasperated when you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after or the day after or how your life is going to unfold just stick with your practices, keep being in the present, keep being aware, alert of what's happening in the moment. As Sri Yuteshwar said, forget the past. Don't worry about the future if you are making a spiritual effort now. And that spiritual effort for each one of us is different because we are just dealing with different things. But as long as we are making that effort, right now, wherever you are here sitting in that chair or reading that book or just talking about uh, Yogananda's life, just make the effort to be present and one step at a time, the Guru will let us know exactly what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And so in Kashmir, they are of course there in Srinagar now, they go to Gulmarg, they get on some horses. This is the first time Yogananda seeing snow. They're like, all the, all the friends are running around. And he says, this says beautifully over here. We, I rolled merrily with my young companions, all wearing overcoats on the sparkling white slopes. Also, this, this imagery just also brings so much joy mm. to think of, you know, these self-realized masters in whatever form, in whatever age they are, just appropriate to that moment, run around, have fun, not like, all right, this is the Himalayas, now we have seen it, shallow. You know, it's not, that's not the spiritual journey either. It's about joy, as we said, it's about that bliss, and you've got to live it, and you've got to experience it, and you've got to show people how it can be lived and experienced as well. And so they visit all these places, they describe, of course, the... Uh, gardens and all the palaces, they go to the Dal Lake, they are going the Shikaras. So these are beautiful descriptions of course for us to read, but they're all just a little bit of the part of the story. I'd like for us to continue further to the point where in fact the main, the main aspect of this trip 
comes. I also want to point out on page 197, Yogananda has given this beautiful um, list almost of what he considers to be the most beautiful places on earth. And uh, when I first read the autobiography, I remember going online and checking all of these places out. I wanted to see them visually. Many of them I'd never heard of. Some of them, of course, I had heard of. So this is another fun kind of list to just, you know, and somewhere in my mind was you know, one day I hope to visit these places, just knowing that my guru had been there and not only been there, but really felt inspired and uplifted by the beauty that God had created in these unique places across the world. So yeah, that would be another fun thing for you to just tune in to go see what these places look like. He talks about Scotland, about England, about Switzerland, the Niagara Falls in Mexico, a lot of places in the United States. And he's talking about it in the context of his belief that Kashmir is, you know, a unique creation and is just high up there, number one position in all beauty around him. Finally, for Yogananda, we get to the point where he has to now head back. Is there anything you have no, no, that you've picked up from me? No. After spending happy weeks, so they spent a decent amount of time there in Kashmir, I was forced to return to Bengal for the fall term of Serampur College. Sri Yukteswar remained in Srinagar with Kanai and Audi. So here he is, Sri Yukteswar, who was refusing to go. Now he gets to stay longer and Yogananda has to come back. Haven't we all experienced that? Chutti office And somebody else gets to stay longer and we have to go back. Before I departed, Master hinted that his body would be subject to suffering in Kashmir. Again, just hinted. You know, never kind of telling him, just. So, you look a picture of health, I protested. There is a chance that I may even leave this earth. So this was a big moment here for between Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar. Guruji, I fell at his feet with an imploring gesture. Please promise me that you won't leave your body now. I am utterly unprepared to carry on without you. Sri Yukteswar was silent but smiled at me so compassionately that I felt reassured. Reluctantly, I left him. Master dangerously ill. This telegram for, from Audi reached me shortly after my return to Serampur. Sir, I wired my guru frantically. I asked for your promise not to leave me. Please keep your body, otherwise I also shall die. <laughs> Yogananda was big on these ultimatums <laughs> to his guru. <laughs> but isn't it amazing to, to have the choice <laughs> to say, Please keep your body. It's, it's like, no, maybe I'll leave it, maybe I won't. Let's see what I feel like in that moment. I wish we had that kind of, you know, Yoganandaji's Mahasamadhi is coming just next week. And yesterday we were with a friend and we were telling her about the fact that, you know, Mahasamadhi means a conscious exit. And she was like, don't we all leave consciously? I said, I wish we all <laughs> left consciously. This is what it means. But you could say, eh, I'll stay in my body or say, no, I'll leave my body. That's the kind of power and control they have over any lifetime that they come into. So here he is and the response that Sri Yukteswar gives is be it as you wish. So there he is, Sri Yukteswar assures Yogananda he will stay in his body. A letter from Audi arrived in a few days informing me that Master had recovered. 
On his return to Sirampur during the next fortnight, I was grieved to find my guru's body reduced to half its usual weight. Fortunately for his disciples, Sri Yukteswar burned many of their sins in the fire of his severe fever in Kashmir. The metaphysical method of physical the metaphysical method of physical transfer of disease is known to highly advanced yogis. A strong man can assist a weaker one by helping to carry his heavy load. A spiritual superman is able to minimize his disciples' physical or mental burdens by sharing the karma of their past actions. So this was another thing that Sri Yukteswar knew he was going to do. And it's interesting because I remember, Narayan, you read, yeah, read that footnote. That. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, it was interesting that Yogananda points at that footnote saying Sri Yukteswarji knew that he was going to have to go through this process. And for some particular reason, he wanted to do it in, in, Kashmir. in Kashmir, in the high Himalaya, surrounded by those um, mountains hallowed by yogis for so many, so many millennia. But that's where he felt was the time for him to burn the karma of his other disciples. In fact, I, I was thinking that the whole chapter, the previous chapter when Yogananda Ji got sick, and this chapter, we visit Kashmir, it's presented as if it was all about Yogananda's karma. Even, even at the beginning of this chapter, Sri Yuteshwar says, you are now strong enough so then we can go as if it all it's all about yogananda feeling strong and well and karmically ready but the truth is that and i kind of felt it was mostly because of sri yuteswar's own karma and how he used his body in this particular moment, city, place, to really accelerate the evolution of his own disciples. So three years, Sri Yuteswar also had to wait. His body had to go through certain things for three years in order for him to be ready to have such huge purification that was all about his work, uh, his legacy through Yogananda and, and made me realize that Yogananda's sickness and Sri Yuteshwar's purification was intertwined, like almost cosmically both of them, those diseases had to come close enough so Sri Yuteshwar then could use that karmic moment to really uh, uplift uh, his work through Yogananda and of course other disciples. Just as a rich man loses some money when he pays off a large debt for his prodigal son, who is thus saved from dire consequences of his own folly, so a master willingly sacrifices a portion of his bodily wealth to lighten the misery of his disciples. By a secret method, 
the yogi unites his mind and astral vehicle with those of a suffering individual. The disease is conveyed wholly or in part to the saint's body. Having harvested God on the physical field, a master no longer cares what happens to that material form. Though he may allow it to register a certain disease in order to relieve others, his mind is never affected. He considers himself fortunate in being able to render such aid. So here we're just kind of tuning into this whole transference of karma, how the body is used in ways, of course, in this particular case, Sri Yukteswar is using his body because his body can hold that much power to kind of neutralize the karma of all his disciples. Yogananda did that often, Swamiji, we saw him do it so many times, not just the disciples, sometimes for a particular project, when that project's about to start, immediately he would go through a major bodily karma. Before a talk, a before lecture. Before lectures sometimes. So you just see that they almost used their body as a playground to let these things just happen. You know, they were so unattached to their body. But this is the interesting part, is that they didn't, even though they could, just let this disease pass through them, unaffecting to their own being. But they let that disease really show. And they allow that suffering to take place. And Yogananda will talk a little bit more about that. So let's just kind of see what Master has to say on this subject. And then if there are other thoughts, we can add, add a little bit towards the end. The devotee who has achieved final salvation in the Lord finds that his body has completely fulfilled its purpose. He can then use it in any way he deems fit. Again, in a very subtle you know, aspect here, our bodies are not able to, we can't use our bodies the way we feel fit because they hold so much baggage. Our body is the physical representation. I mean, remember how the whole process of creation takes place, right? Causal, astral, physical. And so that thread is a continuous thread of manifestations of solidification. So whatever our karma looks like, whatever our thought patterns are, whatever things we need to learn, whatever burdens and debts we are carrying, they're all registered physically in our bodies as well. So everything that we are, everything that we get to express through the body to a certain degree is tied to that karma. Whereas for somebody who has completely united themselves with God, their body is completely free of any compulsion and now they can use it to achieve any end that they need. His work in the world is to alleviate the sorrows of mankind, whether through spiritual means or by intellectual counsel or through willpower or by the physical transfer or of disease. So these are the four ways Yogananda says these self-realized masters work. An intellectual counsel, of course, spiritual means is through our sadhanas, intellectual being through giving us guidance, giving us clarity, helping us understand the philosophy and concepts of the spiritual journey, through willpower, in which they, they consciously put out their infinite will to recreate, to change, to mold, you know, reality in the way that Sri Yukteswar did by healing that uh, friend of Yogananda's who had already died. Just shifting that reality through the sheer will 
of their own being. And then finally, through physical transfer of disease, which again, a lot of masters use for, and this is specifically, usually, for their disciples. Where am I? There we go. Escaping. Escaping to the superconsciousness whenever he so desires, a master can remain oblivious of physical suffering. Sometimes he chooses to bear bodily pain stoically and as an example to disciples. So that's very important for us. When we used to see Swami Kriyananda knowing the pain he's going through, knowing the suffering, or at least the way we would define suffering, that we could at least see he was experiencing, Yet we saw him never say, oh, I'm not well, so therefore I'm just not going to do anything today and I'm just going to sleep all day. No matter what he was going through, his, you know, his sights that he had set on what he needs to accomplish, where he needs to be, who he needs to help, not for a moment did that change. If he had to give a talk and he was just completely destroyed before, he would just say, if I'm destroyed, that's fine, and I, but I know my guru can do anything through me. I will not cancel something that I have already given my word to. We, on the other hand, would be like the happiest people in the world to say, yes, I'm not feeling well, so now I don't have to do this, you know, big thing which I had to put out so much energy outside. So it's very important for us as disciples to see what it looks like to go through this outward suffering and yet keep our mind God-attuned. By putting on the ailments of others, a yogi can satisfy for them the karmic law of cause and effect. This law is mechanically or mathematically operative. Its workings can be scientifically manipulated by men of divine wisdom. This is another important aspect. Mm -hmm. Our masters also cannot just take away our karma and say, Tige, now you never have to go through this again. There are only two ways karmas can be overcome. One, by having learned the lesson so that the situation that would need to teach you that lesson again is no longer needed, which in most of our cases doesn't happen as often as we'd like it to. Or that same energy needs to be redirected but still lived through in this particular case by our Guru. But they can't just say, no, I don't think you need this karma chalo, let's just take it away and let's just throw it somewhere else. The law of karma, as he says, is both mechanical and mathematical, which means it's precise, which means it's all about balance, and that balance has to occur one way or the other. Whether it occurs through our learning, our realization, through our understanding, when that balance is automatically created, and therefore, once our magnetism shifts, the magnetic draw of that karma is no longer applicable to us anymore. Or, in this particular case, by redirecting it and having it lived through somebody else. But still, the cause and effect, that law, that balance has to be fulfilled. The spiritual law does not require a master to become ill whenever he heals another person. So, here Yogananda is making a distinction between a healing and the overcoming and neutralization of karma, which are also two different things. Oftentimes, we talk about people who want to be healed and yes, maybe you can be healed on the surface, maybe a master can say, alright, I'll take away your suffering. But it doesn't mean that he's been able to take away your karma. It just means that he feels perhaps you're not ready for this karma yet, or you may not be able to overcome it in its entirety. So he gives you a respite. But true healing on the absolute level 
is when that lesson has been completely learned. And in, so, in all three bodies. In all three bodies. It's so not just, yeah. Here the master will just take your physical pain representation yeah. of that karma, but he's unable to neutralize your karma unless he decides through this route to run it through his own consciousness. So these are two different things. Healing is different. Overcoming karma, neutralizing karma, destroying your karma is also a different reality. So spiritual law does not require a master to become ill whenever he heals another person because that healing is only a changing of the dream world. That healing is not that the consciousness of the student has shifted. That's the difference here. But when a master goes through this, all our consciousnesses get changed. And this is what the masters do for us. This is the Guru's role really, is that he changes our consciousness. Not that he explains to us Patanjali's Yamas and Niyamas and tells us exactly how the Bhagavad Gita should be interpreted. Those are, you can almost say, superficial ways so that he knows that that will help us attune ourselves. His real work is the upliftment of our consciousness, which he takes very seriously. Healings ordinarily take place through the saint's knowledge of various methods of instantaneous cure, in which no hurt to the spiritual healer is involved. On rare occasions, however, a master who wishes to greatly quicken his disciple's evolution may then voluntarily work out on his own body a large measure of their undesirable karma. We all, oh, in fact, I'll get to the next paragraph and then yeah. talk about this. Jesus signified himself as a, ra as a ransom for the sins of many. That's how Jesus is portrayed, doesn't he? That he died for the sins of those that are his followers, which is exactly what, you know, Sri Yukteswar means here. With his divine powers, his body could never have been subjected to death by crucifixion if he had not willingly cooperated with the subtle cosmic law of cause and effect. He thus took on himself the consequences of others' karma, especially that of his disciples. In this manner, they were highly purified and made fit to receive the omnipresent consciousness which later descended on them. Now, I know there are a lot of words and you perhaps have not got the full gist of it, but if you've ever tuned into the life of Christ, and especially tuned into the life of His disciples, uh, recently a lot of people have been telling us about this new online series called The Chosen, which focuses a lot on the disciples. But even if you've just read the Bible or if you have some basic understanding, His disciples, during the life of Jesus, the three years that they spent with Him, they were actually quite, you know, they were constantly unsure what their master meant. They themselves were a little scared all the time. You know, they were always like, oh, the Romans will come and they'll do this to us. Uh, they didn't even understand, they didn't understand a teachings. lot of Jesus' teachings. Yeah. So you see, this was not, because it wasn't about this. It wasn't about how do you now know in my, you know, what I really mean by Kundalini and all those things. These are the things we get excited about. But the masters aren't really excited about these things. You know, they, again, they have, a, they have to have a vehicle for the transference of knowledge, yes. But that knowledge, by essence, does not actually change our consciousness. If consciousness shifts, knowledge naturally comes. But it doesn't go vice versa. You can't fill yourself 
flood yourself with a, no, with a lot of knowledge and then assume thereby my consciousness now must be different. So his disciples, those three years, he was just preparing them. He was giving them as much little, you know, hints and understandings and clarity on different concepts as he could. But his real work with his disciples was that crucifixion where he allowed himself to be killed. He allowed his body. There is a moment, a very powerful moment, when Jesus is arrested and he's before the, the uh, governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is kind of, you know, asking Jesus, like, do you really think that you're a king? Because if you just tell me right now that you are not the king of the Jews, I can just let you go. I have no interest in crucifying you. I don't want to see you killed. So all you have to do is just say that you are not who you say you are and I'll let you go right here, right now. I mean, Jesus had such a simple way to escape the suffering that he was going to experience soon. And what was Christ's response? He says, even now, if I want, if my father wants, he can send down 12 legions of angels. 12 legions, like an army of angels can descend right now and I can destroy you all. But such is not his will. And this will not fulfill my work. So that he knew that he has to, that karma of his disciples in order to actually lift up their consciousness, to transform them, to evolve them, that law of cause and effect has to take place. And there he was, willing for it to take place through his body. Great masters have done this for years, incarnations. Ramana uh, Ramakrishna Paramahans died of a ca mouth cancer where he went through extreme pain and it lasted several years. And that was his way of using his body to help and alleviate a lot of the karmas of his disciples. So this is the role of these great masters. Unknown, unhidden, they're not talking about it, they don't make a big show of it. Christ didn't go up there and say, I'm doing this for you, you see this, I'm doing this for you. No, he just played his role. But after his crucifixion, all his disciples suddenly changed and shifted. And only after his passing did his disciples achieve self-realization, not in his lifetime. I think all real self-realized masters, they really want for each one of us to understand the teachings in a much more intuitive level and not only giving us that intellectual satisfaction. In fact, Jesus' disciples only understood his teachings where they were in deep meditation, perhaps years later, after Jesus was crucified, or perhaps, you know, putting things together of watching Jesus doing that and then doing this other, and then in their own mind, you know, they, they put those events together and try to understand the teachings much more from an intuitive perception and this is what Yogananda is doing with many of us who are his disciples. I'm sure your own guru is doing the same with you because they want for us to understand the meaning of the teachings from, their, from the heart and, and it's very very important that we take time to do that and yes start to i mean try to analyze a few things but then give it time to understand them understand them intuitively 
from the heart because that's where, where they are really explaining to us what they mean, what they are expecting from us, what they think and how they think we should uh, behave in every situation. So even Sri Yutesh were here, I mean, I think Yogananda had to fill all this out on his own. I mean, this is what I think my guru was trying to do, and this is why he waited for three years. I mean, all these thoughts that Yogananda is sharing in this book, and especially in this particular chapter of his trip to Kashmir, this is all intuitive perceptions that Yogananda had to put together how Sri Yuteswar worked in that particular way and what he was trying to convey and to explain to Yogananda through this disease, not necessarily by telling Yogananda, I'm doing this, as you were saying, for this, this and that. So, yeah, intuitive perception, it's, it's a good practice. Yeah, I think we, we're already at the end of our class. We have a, just two pages left for this chapter, but we'll pick it up next class because there are at least three other points yet to be made that deserve their own kind of focused attention. But um, this is a wonderful place to just stop, to introspect a little bit, to tune into your master, to tune into your guru, and just ask him to help you really change your consciousness. Ask him to help you in that attunement, help you feel why are certain desires being fulfilled, why aren't others, what really is it that you want me to learn? And also to say, Guru, I hope on my behalf you don't have to go through all this unnecessary suffering. Help me learn and grow before you are forced to take on my karma onto yourself. And, uh, you know, have that inner dialogue with him. I'm sure he'll appreciate it and love it very much. <laughs>